Matthew 7. Well, if you haven't been with us, beloved, we have been studying what is known as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, um, for a number of months now, and we're entering into what is the conclusion of this glorious sermon. And there's two sermons left, one today, which we will cover verses 15 to 23, and then next week, um, 24 to the end of the chapter, that is verse 29. Let me read the word of God, and then we will spend our time together looking at it in detail this morning. The Lord Jesus continues this glorious sermon in verse 15 with these words. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts and minds this morning. Now, these words, as I said, begin what is known as the conclusion of one of the Lord's most familiar teachings in all of the New Testament, this glorious Sermon on the Mount which provides God's people with Christ's fullest instruction of his law, of his word. Line by line, part by part, he's laying down, beloved, teaching for his church, for his bride. Now, the sermon, as you recall, begins with the Beatitudes in chapter 5, describing the joy, that is, the deep-down happiness and spiritual contentment of all who are saved by grace. Saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the first step to joy. That is that plea for help, the the admission of inward emptiness, the acknowledgement of moral destitution, and the inability to make ourselves righteous. That's what it is, Jesus said, to be poor in spirit. And those who, who taste God's presence have declared absolute spiritual bankruptcy, having become desperately aware of this spiritual crisis. They hardly admit that the, 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 their spiritual pockets are empty, their spiritual cupboards are bare, so to speak. They have nothing in and of themselves. They have no other religious options. They're not crying for justice, they're pleading for mercy. Blessed are the poor in spirit. They're not spiritual braggers, these are spiritual beggars. Blessed by God. 
They're asking for God to do for them what they could never accomplish on their own. That's salvation. That's the gospel. Now, the Beatitudes also go on to teach us uh, what God's people value. That is, that which they treasure in their heart because of the salvation granted them through Christ Jesus. And the fact that God will bless those who value what he values. They have a pure heart. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're merciful as they have been shown mercy and so on. And then he goes on to treat treat the false interpretation of the law of God by the Pharisees of his day. Just a little recap right now. That's what we're going through. And Jesus is saying uh, back in chapter 5, you've heard what they have said, but I say. And six times Jesus goes on to rightly define and correctly interpret the law of God in a biblical manner. And then he addresses the basics of Christian life. He goes on to teach us about prayer. He teaches about giving. He teaches about devotion to God, along with the motivation behind those very things. Do we do those things in order to be seen by men? Or do we do these things to glorify our Father who sees in what? Secret. Who sees in secret. So Jesus goes on also to give an exhortation to treasure up for yourselves uh, treasures in heaven. To maintain, in other words, an eternal focus so as not to become filled with concerns that only produce anxiety and deep worry. And then he comes to the final portion of the sermon in chapter 7, which teaches about judgment. And he begins with the manner in which we're called to judge. He said, don't judge according to appearance. Don't judge hypocritically, but make a right and proper judgment. Don't cast pearls before swine. Don't give to the dogs what is holy. That is to make a right and proper judgment. You have to discern between the hogs and the dogs and what are pearls and what is precious. Amen? And then in verse 13, the Lord provides a contrast between the road to eternal life and the road that leads to destruction. The narrow versus the wide way. The few versus the many, the easy versus the hard, and life versus destruction. Two definitive ends in which all human beings will eventually meet. There's two gates. Jesus speaks clearly. There's two points of entry into eternity. There are two gates, but only one way of salvation. Both appear to lead to the same place. Both gates assumed to provide entrance into God's kingdom. And every single human being undeniably is, Jesus said, is on one of these two ways. They've entered in by way of one of these two gates. One gate is by faith. It is very narrow. It is limited. It is specific. It is Christ, which leads to true salvation. The wide gate includes all systems. All religions, truth is relative, it invites works righteousness, and it leads to hell. So Jesus now is calling on people to respond to the message. He says, enter into the kingdom. So he's extending here an urgent call for his hearers to join his kingdom by the one and only possible way. There is no acceptable alternative, beloved, to Jesus Christ. 
He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. There's no combination of religions that will allow you to enter into this kingdom. There's no partial, uh, partial participation in Jesus Christ. In other words, to hold the truth in your head going, yeah, I know he's the way. Maybe one day. Maybe one day I'll submit to him. Jesus is forcing a decision here. He's forcing a decision in the heart of those in attendance on this day between one of two ways. And there is no doubt that there are some who are in attendance here that were regretting that they made the trek up this hill to hear this preacher. Because this is an either-or proposition. This is his call to enter the kingdom, to enter into the realm, beloved, of his lordship. That's the call. Salvation is by grace alone. But you know that grace demands things? Grace is not cheap. Grace demands knowledge of the truth. Grace demands repentance. Grace demands submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. And grace demands compliance to do his will by the grace and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit that he provides. This is what he's preaching. Salvation is submission to the one who's earned the way for us. But Jesus said the way's not easy. He said back in verses 13 and 14, he said the way is hard. It's a hard way. Look at Luke 9. What did Jesus say in Luke 9? Beginning in verse 23. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does does it profit if a man gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the glory of the holy angels. Now, this narrow way, beloved, is the way of the cross. The way for which he will provide access. It is only through the cross that anyone comes to this kingdom, that comes to this king. And yet so many preachers today, so many teachers today, so many pew-sitters today attempt to make it sound so easy. Now, this is important for anyone who's walking along, wandering in their religion, walking and wandering around in, in what they deem to be the way of God as they have created God in their own image drifting along in what is perhaps orthodox traditionalism or perhaps uh, the faith of one's parents, the faith of a friend, the faith of a spouse. But Jesus was asked, asked the question of his disciples, Lord, are there only a few that are saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Now, very important, beloved, that Jesus does not mean that salvation is by works. Do we all know that? You cannot earn your way into this kingdom. But what he is saying here in Luke 13 is that people must be very sober and sincere about salvation. Jesus is the sobering reality of saving faith. His cross. 
him upholding the law, laying down his life. So this is a warning to those who hear and do not do what he calls his hearers to do with his message. They've just been sitting here standing on the side of this hill listening to him for a number of minutes. And now he calls them to make a decision. This is a firm conclusion to any who might hear and yet remain indifferent or uncommitted to this preacher of preachers. So the warning in this message is for supposedly professing believers in Jesus. Notice, he sums up the warning in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter. Now, Jesus is making a distinction between the religious... And the righteous. It's one thing to be religious, beloved. It's another thing to be righteous. It's one thing to have the righteousness of Christ imputed to you. It's another to be a very religious do-gooder. Like the Pharisees were. This is a, a distinction between those who profess to be people of God and those who are actually the people of God. Those who think they belong inside the covenant and the kingdom. And those who actually do belong inside the covenant and the kingdom. And this distinction happens to be woven throughout all of Scripture. It's consistent within the New Testament, beginning with the Lord confronting the false faith of these religious leaders on this hillside on this day. This distinction moves on in Peter's ministry when he confronts and exposes the false faith of Simon of Samaria in Acts 8. It continues on with the Apostle Paul warning the false faith of the Judaizers who demanded that people observe the law and be circumcised before they can be saved. That they have to go do this and do that and then believe in Jesus. He confronts that false faith to James who describes the dead faith of a fruitless life. To Jude who calls out the secret phonies of the false faith within the church. And then finally, Jesus, in the book of Revelation, describes a church that had a name for itself, that it was vibrant and alive, but he said was dead. They had a dead faith, a said faith, a false faith. Some have said to me in the past, trust me, you know, you speak about that a lot. And the reality is, beloved, in biblical exposition, when you study verse by verse, the Bible speaks about it a lot. That's the reality, beloved. And although it may make us uncomfortable, we can't ignore it because as he has spoken, we shall therefore speak. This is the word of God. We shall look at the whole counsel of God and we shall not be ashamed of it. We must grow to learn every word of God. This warning is for us out of his love. Beware of false teachers that will lead you to hell. (laughs) What a gracious gift of God. So in verse 15, Jesus actually interrupts his gospel invitation with a series of warnings. Warnings against false teachers, false fruit, and false assurance. Notice there's no invitation by Jesus here to bow your head, close your eyes, and repeat this prayer or creed after me. Did you notice that? This is not some nominal, insignificant call to salvation, but this is a call that is of, of, of a very restricted way. He's the way. This preacher's the way. This preacher's the truth. This preacher's the life. 
Now, he's just preached, as we looked at a few weeks ago, a warning about the wide and easy way, this broad way that appears to be religious, but it leads to destruction. And the thing that makes the broad road so easy to turn onto is the large number of false teachers flagging people onto that way in Jesus' day as well as in our day. Notice first, the first warning is against false teachers. <clears throat> they stand at the wide gate convincing many with what they want to hear. Convincing many with what they want to hear. On the outside, these teachers are fluffy and warm, likable, personable. They're incredibly friendly. The sounds that come out of their mouth oftentimes sound very good. They seem so trustworthy. They'll visit you at your home. They'll visit you when you're sick. They sound pious. They talk about God. They talk about Jesus. But Jesus says, beware. Watch out. Be on guard. Be on the alert. They preach the gospel of the wide and easy path. They make it sound incredibly easy to become a Christian. They make it sound incredibly easy to be saved. William Hendrickson comments on this. He said this, quote, Our Lord does not follow the method that is used by certain self-styled revivalists who speak as if getting saved is one of the easiest things in the world. Jesus, on the contrary, pictures entrance into the kingdom as being on the one hand most desirable, yet on the other, not at all easy. You see, because they preach a gospel of no no repentance required. No repentance required. No recognition of Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what they preach. No desire of self. Uh, Just repeat this prayer or pass through this class or recite this confession and you're in. They preach a gospel of success. These false teachers preach a gospel of fulfilling your dreams. Have you heard it? They're out there. They'll say anything you want to hear in order to get you to reach into their pockets and supply, provide supply for their acts that are nothing more than being a charlatan and a hireling. That's it. Many who preach the quote-unquote gospel today are far out of step with Jesus, who is the gospel. They're pseudo-prophets. These are not spokesmen for God. These are bogus, fake pretenders appearing to be sheep on the outside, calling you in, but they are ravenous wolves, Jesus said, on the inside. They're on the prowl. They're looking for prey, and they know that spiritual suckers are born every minute. They're on the prowl. So the playing field, beloved, will be filled with charlatans, will be filled with these swindlers and pretenders working hard to appear as being a friend, working hard to appear as being a disciple and a herald of the truth, but they stand at the wide gate to tickle ears and to massage people's egos. That's what they do. Oh, you believe that about God? That's acceptable before God. There's many ways, friend. There's many ways, they say. So as we travel along along this road of life, beloved, we will undoubtedly be met by false people, by false prophets, by false followers of these false prophets, and they'll knock on your door and they'll show you a better way. 
beware, Jesus said. So Jesus asks, is the road that you're on wide and easy? Does it accommodate any and all beliefs about God? Is it the single track that is narrow with only a few that are on it, said Jesus? So he says, beware of the false ones. Beware of these hirelings. That is a warning of love. Do you see this as love? It's a warning of love. Warning number two, false fruit. Verse 16 and 17. He says to them, you'll recognize them. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. You'll recognize them. Notice, Jesus said by their fruit. He doesn't say you'll recognize them by the size of their ministry. You will not recognize them by the celebrities that stand on the platform next to them, even though you may be a fan of that celebrity. You won't recognize them by their TV ministry. You'll recognize them by their fruit because fruit always reveals the root. Always. So look at the fruit of their own life, he said. Look at the fruit of their followers. Look at the fruit. Listen to what they say and how they say it. So Jesus, notice he goes on to provide this long syllogism of logic with regard to what trees produce, what bad trees produce, and false teachers produce false fruit. Notice verse 16. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? It is a rhetorical question that Jesus does not provide the answer for because it's that obvious. So he's expanding here his explanation. He's growing through all the logical possibilities to reinforce his point that there will be signs and there will be symbols that define one as either a true representative and spokesman for God or one who is false. There's going to be false representatives of Jesus until Jesus comes back, beloved. May we have discernment. He warns us to have this discernment. They're continually waving people upon the broad path. They're pushing people into the wide gate because it, it, the wide gate, provides and allows for nominalism. It allows for pluralism. It allows for universalism and every other kind of ism that man can come up with. They're pushing people into this gate. Come on in. Many churches that profess to be churches are nothing more than feel-good gatherings. Spiritual supper clubs, as they've said. If someone were to actually come in and open up a Bible and preach Jesus Christ crucified, Jesus Christ buried and raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father who rules and reigns, that he's the way, the truth, and the life, they'd run out of there like mad men and women. Because the truth, that, the truth says, you are in no way, you are in no way good enough to save yourself. He requires a righteousness that you in no way can produce on your own. You'll never see a brokenness on these teachers. 
You'll never see a brokenness that, that, that these teachers uh, stand before their audience in, in utter brokenness, realizing and professing that we are sinners in desperate need of grace and mercy and righteousness and pardon. They don't preach that truth. They say you should prosper now to the fullest. It's not a message of brokenness. You'll see a self-righteousness. You'll see a gospel of prosperity. You'll, you'll see a gospel that declares a life free of suffering, free of sickness. And if you're sick and you aren't healed, they say you lack faith. This is a message that announces that all sincere spiritualists can enter in here. We accommodate every way because they say God accepts you just the way you are. And that is so far from the truth. God does not accept people as they are or they wouldn't need a savior to be accepted. He doesn't accept anybody like they are. You must be in Christ, covered by the blood of the Lamb, or you will be rejected. That was said in love. <laughs> Is that the fruit of a mouthpiece for God? That he accepts any and all? No. All roads do not lead to God. That's why it's narrow. That's why it's hard. That's why it's difficult. It's the way of the cross. The way of the criminal Treated as a criminal, taken outside the camp, taken outside the city, taken outside the walls, crucified. That's the way, baby. The only way. All you have to do is turn on the the television and see this unbiblical madness in America, which Africa is copying, by the way. And I pray that you might support me going down there again this year to help preachers preach the truth with Dr. Van Horn. But there's also another group that have a more serene, tranquil style of preaching who who will not only preach a false gospel, but they preach no words of warning at all. After all, if you accept every way and accommodate every type of mindset, what warning is there? The warning that they have is the narrow-mindedness that Jesus is the only way. That's it. These are those who refuse to speak of the hard teachings of Christ, the hard teachings of judgment. They only teach about the happy things, the easy things, and they smooth out and they widen the path that is already wide. That's it. They neglect to preach the evangelistic word of promise, hope, and deliverance, Christ crucified, that it's only the blood of the Lamb that saves. They don't preach it. Beware of false prophets. Beware of false fruit. Size of their ministry means nothing. How many people watch it on TV means nothing. Do they preach Christ? Do they preach Christ crucified? Do they preach Christ raised? Do they preach Christ ascending to the Father, ruling and reigning over a kingdom people now who will come again and consummate that kingdom in glory? Do they preach that? 
Do they preach you must repent and, and, and have a mind change? That's what repentance is, that you can't do this on your own. You're not righteous. You're not good enough. You have no good in and of yourself. You need him. Is that the fruit they bear? They preach their own fantasies. They preach their own creative formulas. They tell people what they want to hear. They always have. They always will. That's the fruit they bear. Remember what Paul said to Timothy? The time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine. They won't want to hear it. They'll become bored over it. But having itching ears, they will accumulate. Notice this. They accumulate teachers for themselves to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and they wander off into myths. So Paul says, Timothy, don't stand like the others at the broad gate telling them what they want to hear in order to get them on board. If they won't want to get on board, let them go. Because for anyone to get on board, it takes the effectual call of God, the Holy Spirit. You don't jump on on your own. It takes the effectual call of God himself to convince you that he's the only way, to see your desperate need that he is the only way. And you don't jump on board. You jump at his feet. and You embrace him and you never let him go. And the reason that you respond like that is because he's reached out to you and he has embraced your heart. He's changed your mind. That's another paradoxical reality of the sovereignty of God and salvation and the call for men and women to repent and believe. The tension's good. Let the tension remain. Men stand in pulpits today and they refer to the, co- to the cross of Jesus Christ as cosmic child abuse. Did you know that? That's, there's some fruit of a false prophet. It's cosmic child abuse? That comes from a guy who claims to be an evangelical Christian. How can he even be a Christian and say that? It's the exact opposite of what Isaiah said. It pleased the Lord to crush him. Who did he have in mind? Let me say this first. What did he have in mind? His glory first and foremost. Secondly, you. You're a means to his end. It was God who put him to death, Isaiah said. Then you have those who deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That his bones are in some box somewhere in Palestine. You see that on the History Channel. And then these supposed preachers and teachers, these supposed professors, denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you want to follow them because they have a a, a line of letters behind their name? You are a fool in your folly. You are deceived. You've been hooked by a false prophet. They deny his deity. They deny his lordship. That's bad fruit. Spoiled fruit. Because the root is spoiled, beloved. Verse 18. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruits cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruit. There's no possibility for mixing and matching here in the mind of Jesus. 
It's not possible to masquerade to the end. You, you, they, false teachers, will be revealed. They'll be cut down and thrown into the fire. You know what this fire is? Damnation. Condemnation. Eternal judgment. Hell. That's where they will go. And false teachers, beloved, who bear false fruit, produce false assurance. And whenever you have false teachers... you inevitably find false converts. For if there were not false converts and followers of these charlatans, they would have no platform to preach. Amen? So those who want to give the context of this passage solely to false teachers are mistaken because false teachers always produce false converts by way of their false assurance. It's pretty simple. Verse 21, false assurance. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, listen to this ministry. Listen to, listen to this ministry. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of what? Lawlessness. It's been well said that hell will be filled with people who did not expect to be there. And the reason that it's been well said is that it is a translation of what Jesus says here. That's why it's good. Some on this day are going to say, wait, Lord, I must be in the wrong line. Let's evaluate something. Remember my ministry? Lord, Lord, I got my orthodoxy right. Lord, Lord, I have my soteriology right. Lord, Lord, I have my doctrine correct. I mean, come on. I must be in the wrong line. Look at what I did in your name. These charlatans will say, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did mighty miracles in your name. So Jesus points not only to religious works, but religious works which seem to be of extreme examples of religious work. Those things that by all outward appearances look good, look mighty, look powerful. And they will hear, depart from me. That's what they will hear. Misleading people. Misrepresenting God himself. Misrepresenting his word. So what is the warning here? It is this, externals mean very little in God's economy. Very little. Remember, he's speaking directly to the religious establishment. Remember the earthly sons of Abraham who thought that the way of salvation came by way of their ethnic birthright, being in Abraham? That's who he's speaking to, directly. He's speaking to Jews on this day. But some people today believe that the way of salvation is by way of their birthright into a Christian home, the covenant children of God. Okay, that's good. That's a blessing if you're born into a Christian home. But that in and of itself means nothing if the individual doesn't have faith alone in Christ alone. Not via your parents or your uncle or your husband or your wife. They trusted in religion. They trusted in their own goodness. They trusted in their heritage, but not in the promised one, Jesus Christ. He 
So Jesus says, idle words lead to death. Idle words. An inactive profession of faith leads to destruction. You know what the third commandment says of the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in what? In vain. Well, we typically interpret that as, you know, those people out in the world there, you know, cussing and using Jesus' name in vain and God's name in vain. But the application is more than just for cursing of an unbelieving world. It's those who actually profess his name. They, they, they profess being on the inside. They profess to be recipients of salvation, which is much more subtle. It's much more heinous, actually. It's not just those who openly blaspheme his name. You know, the road to life, beloved, you're the church. You're in Christ, which means you're the bride of Christ, covered by the blood of the Lamb. And you know, the road of life that Jesus is speaking of passes directly through the church in a more visible way than of any other place known to man. That's the privilege that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. Young people, young people, young people in the fellowship hall, young people here. The privilege that you have of growing up in a Christian home. Please don't ever take it for granted. You're blessed. And the words of life pass directly through the church. You sit and you hear and you receive the blessings of God's grace. You witness the baptism of those who've been transformed by grace. You partake or watch your parents or one another partake of the Lord's table. We sing songs of deliverance and pardon and of grace. We see the influence of the life of Christ through the people of Christ as that very city set on a hill. This is what we get to see. The life, the road of life passes through the church. Church, the very temple of God. But it seems to me that while at the same time the road of destruction also passes through what is known as the visible church. Because not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, to Jesus, that's a declaration of his deity, will enter in, he said. Now remember the context. Jesus is preaching to professing believers of the Old Testament, children of Israel, of Abraham physical children of promise. They had it all wrong because of what they did, what they recited. False assurance. So this passage, Christian, Christian, this passage must be allowed to have its way with us. Amen? This is the whole counsel of God. Being a Christian is more than growing up in a Christian home. It's more than wearing the right clothes or being with the right people or reciting the right Bible verses or creeds or confessions. It's being, being a Christian is a matter of the heart before Almighty God. Transformed by God. Being a Christian is a matter of your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ who alone saves the sinner. It, it involves truth in your relationship, in my relationship to that truth. So it is much more than mumbling the idle words, Lord, Lord. Jesus makes that clear. Notice verse 21, not everyone who says Lord, Lord, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. There's ownership involved here. He owns you, so we embrace him. We're disciples. We, we, we show him a reciprocal love. He first loved us, so we therefore love him. We love all his truth. Now, let me make this clear again. For the record, 
Jesus is in no way suggesting that works are required or meritorious for salvation. Amen? Salvation is not by works, and anyone who trusts in works for salvation, by the way, isn't saved. So if you're here this morning and you trust in your works, you're not saved. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. However, true faith in the king will not fail to produce the fruit of Christ-honoring works in one way, shape, form, or another. And why is that? Because the very Spirit of God lives in the people of God, and his life expresses itself through the vessel he indwells. It's that simple. Now, it's important to note that progress in the Christian life for us is oftentimes slow, right? It's oftentimes slow. We don't bear the fruit that we would like to bear, amen? I don't know about you, but I don't bear the fruit that I would like to bear. Besetting sins, does anybody have any? Besides the guy speaking today? We all have besetting sins. Our faith and trust is not in what we do or don't do. It is in Christ who's done it all. And as we abide in the vine, produce, we, we, we don't produce fruit, but fruit just naturally appears as being in the king. But what Jesus says here is those who teach, those who profess to be preachers of my truth, you must observe their fruit. It must be very visible what they say, what they herald. So he provides warning. Look at their fruit. If there's some TV preacher you're like, look at his fruit, beloved, because most of them are charlatans, I'll tell you right now. Most of them on TV are charlatans. So anyone with an earshot of Jesus on this day, with an earshot of this sermon either here or over the Internet, must understand that our, sinful, our sinfulness affects every part of our lives, which drives us wholeheartedly to trust in Jesus Christ alone who saves. That's the message. And that's the messenger. It's Christ. So do you this morning name the name of Christ in truth, beloved? In truth? Or do you profess his name with idle words? Many churches to this day profess his name, but their hearts are so far from him. Not unlike in Jesus' day when he said, well, did Isaiah prophesy? When he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of who? Men. In other words, tradition takes over. Orthodox tradition of their lips, but their heart is far from the master. So we mustn't only call him Lord, we must serve him as Lord. Amen. Because he is Lord. By the way, you don't accept Jesus as Savior and then decide for him to be Lord later. Did you know that? He is Lord whether we like it or not. He is Lord. So which road are you on this morning? You know, perhaps you're at a place this morning, you've agreed with the Bible all your life, the truth of Scripture, but you've never heard the call of the gospel personally. That effectual mind and heart-altering truth, maybe today is the day for you. You know what Paul was as an ambassador of Christ? He was one who, who was appealing 
imploring people to call on Christ who didn't know him. He said this, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Because he's the only mediator that enables man to be reconciled to God. The narrow way. This means to beg. I implore you. He says, I beg you as ambassadors. Because Paul knew it was coming. Knowing firsthand the holy penetrating glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he pleads. You can't do this in your own righteousness. Don't bank on your traditions. Be reconciled to God. And then the sinner would normally say, but how do I do this? How? What do I do? The answer is in the next verse. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the what? The righteousness of God. He's your righteousness by being in Christ. So the same righteousness, beloved, that Christ preached in this sermon and which he consequently demands a a life of righteousness, that righteousness is available only through Christ, the narrow way, the narrow gate. If you don't know him today, I say, and I beg like Paul, flee to him. Flee to him. Personally, be reconciled. If you, for the first time, have been given eyes to see and ears to hear, and you too shall be saved. All that the Father gives me, Jesus said, will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will never what? I will never cast out. Whosoever will may come. Come to him today if you don't know him. Come to him today if you've been on the broad road. And for the rest of us, church, rejoice. Rejoice and be thankful. And may we show that thankfulness to this glorious Lord and this glorious Savior to show our thankfulness through obedience and the power and the presence of His Spirit for which He provides every moment of every day. Amen. Because we're all prone to hearing. You're prone to hearing because you're in a church that heralds the Word of God. But the question is, how do we hear? And next time, in the conclusion of this glorious sermon, we will hear what Jesus said about hearing in what we do with that which we hear. Amen? If you have any questions about salvation, if you personally have been awakened to the reality of personal faith in Jesus Christ, please see me. Or I can point you to someone else that can help you with the truth of the gospel that Jesus is the only way, that he is the narrow gate. Amen? Rejoice, church, rejoice. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the fact that uh, we are not required to enter into heaven on our own works. But we've come to the place of realizing by your grace that we have failed long ago, that we can in no way uphold the law, but the mediator stands in our behalf, Jesus Christ, your son, who came, lowered himself to become a man, upheld that law, laid down his life as the sacrifice on our behalf, who raised up the third day, ascended to your right hand, and rules and reigns over his bride, his church, his kingdom people. May we, Lord, be granted uh, the privilege in your providence to have unbelievers um, among us 
um, whose hearts are prepared to hear and receive such a glorious message. And may we not waver, Lord. May we never preach a broad way. May we preach the narrow way, the narrow gate, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Give us strength to do so and the power of the Spirit to proclaim that truth in love. And for anyone here this morning, Lord, who has walked in is unregenerate, may this message penetrate their heart that you would breathe life into them, life everlasting through faith in your Son alone. For it's in his name we pray.